0: Hello. Welcome to this podcast called Finding Inspiration. It's a 20 or so minute weekly podcast where we interview someone with an amazing story. After the show, I know you're going to feel energized, invigorated, and inspired. I'm Jennifer Weissman. Welcome to Finding Inspiration. Today, we're talking about another pandemic, but it's not Corona. We're talking about the ongoing, unbelievably dangerous opioid crisis that is accelerating across the world. Accidental overdose from opioids is surging in almost every zip code you can imagine. In the state of Vermont alone, the number of accidental deaths is up 57%. These numbers are staggering. Today, we're speaking to a woman whose son, Sam, died at 20 years old from an accidental opioid overdose. And the focus of our talk is not just about the opioid crisis, but also about how Chris has written a book called Of Grief, Garlic, and Gratitude, and how she has put her life back together and moved forward. And it's a very, very inspiring and difficult story. I'm sitting here with Chris Francoeur. Our conversation today starts in a very sad way. It's the story of her 20 year old son, Sam, who died in 2013 from an accidental overdose. But the focus of what we're going to talk about today is how Chris moved through with her conscious and deliberate gratitude and she moved to the other side. She then wrote a book. She tours around the country, and she has a lot of insight to share with other parents who are grieving a unspeakable loss. So welcome, Chris.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So take us back to 2013. It was October, and I know I want to spend a little bit of time on, on Sam and what happened, and then I want to spend most of the time talking about the way you have an incredible ability to transform a horrific experience into something. I don't even want to say positive, but something where you can pick yourself up again and move forward with your life and find joy again. So can you tell us what happened? And um, and then we'll talk next about how you transformed yourself.
1: So on October 9th, 2013, we got a call um, from my mother and it started with. Uh, Kristen, you need to come up here. They think Sam is dead. And, um, you know, that is not the call you ever expect to get. We immediately, it was 5.34 in the morning. We jumped out of bed. We ran to the car and and drove well over the speed limit to my parents' house, which is about 15 minutes away from ours, with the idea that based upon the phone call that perhaps Sam was still alive. We had no idea at that point what had happened, Um, but we did know as soon as we got to the town where my mother lives and into the village, we knew that Sam was dead because we could see that the ambulance, the lights were off, there was no urgency at that point. And over the course of the next couple hours, we learned that Sam had died of an accidental opioid overdose uh, from a fentanyl pain patch that he had put in his mouth. And so he did die at my parents' house. And, um, you know, he was the light of all of our lives and was exceedingly close to his grandparents. And yet he died in their living room.
0: That must have been a unspeakable loss for them, having woken up in the middle of the night and found their grandson uh, dead on the floor. That's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, when I want to talk for one brief minute because I, I read your book and I saw that there were a lot of accidental fentanyl patch deaths in your area and that um, it seems to be an epidemic the fentanyl overdosing, specifically with patches. The other thing that was interesting to me was that it was purposely kept out of the local paper because Middlebury College is in your town.
1: What we found was, you know, when the medical examiner said to us that it was Sam had died from the fentanyl pain patch, she let slip that there had been multiple fentanyl deaths in our local area over the last six weeks before Sam's death. None of that had ever made the press. It didn't make the paper. It didn't make the local news stations, nothing. And yet there had been this problem. But at the same time, we live um, about 10 minutes south of Middlebury College in wonderful Addison County, Vermont. But Addison County, Vermont does not want to have the reputation of being a hotspot for illicit drug use and opioids in particular. And the local, the college, the local area was working very hard at keeping that image away from our area. They had blocked a treatment center nearby. They had really worked hard at making sure it looked like we didn't have a problem. Net result of that was that, you know, my parents knew that Sam at times was, you know, was using substances. They had locked up everything else in their house, including ibuprofen, but had not locked up the fentanyl pain patch because they didn't know. None of us knew at that time that this could be used in this way.
0: Using a fentanyl pain patch. Is the same rush that you would get with a fentanyl in any other form? Yes, absolutely.
1: But it's even more instantaneous because it goes through the membranes of the
0: mouth and goes directly to the brain. I see. Okay. All right. So that's an interesting side note. Uh, and I'm, I'm also curious, how is the overdose situation in Addison County, Vermont now?
1: It continues to be awful. It is an epidemic across the United States. States. It's an epidemic across the world. Vermont continues to have an exceedingly high rate of opioid abuse um, in our in our population. And we continue, there isn't a day that goes by that you don't pick up the paper in Vermont and see that there has
0: been another, at least one, if not multiple overdose deaths. That's horrible. We're going to go back to that terrible day in October of 13 you found out Sam had passed away. How did you, over the course of the next few months, how did you pick yourself back up again and talk a little bit about the role of social media? And then we'll get to your book and how you started touring.
1: So one of the things that happened immediately, you know, with the first 12 hours after Sam's death was just plain cold shock. I mean, I I have one or two memories from that day but very little but the darkness that came with the grief of losing him was was overwhelming about 3 days after his death i stood down um, by our barn with our with our alpacas looking at the animals and my cousin who had lost his brother at 21 to a heart issue my cousin stood with me and he made the comment of if the if your other kids lose you like i lost my mom when Mike died, when his brother died, it goes, if they lose you, like I lost my mom, I will come back and kick your butt. And I thought a lot about that. I thought about how we had three living children. Our first grandchild was about to be born. You know, we still had a kid in high school and I couldn't, no matter how much I wanted to call, crawl into a hole. And never come out. We couldn't. I couldn't do that to my other children, to my husband, to to the people that were around us. And um, the day after Sam's service, his celebration of life, I was standing out on our back deck, and our deck looks out to the Adirondacks, and it was a beautiful, clear, sunny day. And suddenly, on a sunny day. There was this incredible vertical rainbow instead of a horizontal or stretching across the sky. This rainbow went up and down and it looked like from our house that it was coming directly from the cemetery where Sam's ashes had been buried. I wasn't the only person that day that saw the the. Rainbow all over the place, all over the local area. Sam's friends were posting the pictures of this rainbow and commenting that it seemed to be coming from the cemetery. On that day, I wrote a post on, fo- on Facebook that even in the, in the midst of great sadness and darkness, there still were moments of beauty. And that rainbow, to this day, that rainbow is the cover photo on my phone because that was such a beautiful moment. And it started me on the recognition that I needed to see what I could be thankful for in life.
0: Being a mom myself, I cannot imagine what you've gone through. I'm almost curious, if I can use that word, in the days and the months past Sam's death, how did you actually do that? Like, what were the specific techniques you used to get yourself up and out of bed every day, making breakfast and having a normal life? What exactly did you do?
1: The first thing I did was to adopt an online a habit of every single day I posted on Facebook about that for which on that day I was grateful. It could be a little thing. It could be, um, well, it wasn't a little thing at the time. But my assistant one day brought me a box of the really soft Kleenex with the lotion on it because I admittedly, Sam used to call me every day at lunchtime. Every day at lunchtime, at work, I would cry because I knew he wasn't going to call and she brought me soft Kleenex. And that day I wrote a post about being grateful for soft Kleenex. Sometimes it was really big things like the day we found out that Sam's friends had planted a tree in his memory in one of his favorite spots. And every day I wrote about something for which I was grateful. It was by doing it online. I was holding myself accountable to making sure I did it. And because I also believed that I couldn't at that point necessarily say verbally to people, thank you for what you're doing to support us, but I could write it down. And often I was writing in the middle of the night, but I would post what I was grateful for on that day. And as I continued to do that, and I did it consistently for over 30 months, and I still do it very consistently, but not necessarily every single day. The light began to come back into my heart, into my mind. I began to be able to laugh again, to be able to find joy, because I could see that you no, know, my, my heart will always be broken. But I could see that there still were things in life that were worth being excited and joyful about. and. People were showing us love, and I needed to recognize that.
0: Was the joy you were receiving on Facebook, was it that people were responding to your postings, or was it the act of expressing yourself publicly?
1: Both. I would say very much both. The many people responded to the posts people also not only you know replied to my posts or shared my posts they started posting themselves about how they were beginning to look at their lives that's actually how the idea for the book developed was people started saying this really helped even if i had spent the last hour crying because you know using a very specific example sam loved cheeseburgers the first time i made a cheeseburger after his death was probably about 3 to 4 months after his death And I sobbed the whole time because he was never going to walk through the door and ask for a cheeseburger again. But after that, my eyes swollen from crying. I look awful when I cry. After I did that, I then sat down that night and wrote about the things that had been wonderful that day. And doing it every time I did it, it lifted my heart. It made me feel connected back to the rest of the world. And it made me feel that I was reaching out to other people.
0: The act of helping other people and their feedback to you on the Facebook gave you a sense of purpose, gave you a sense of joy, maybe a new beginning. Is that?
1: Absolutely. All of them. Yes. All of them.
0: How did the book come to be? I, I understand that you wrote a lot of for posts over the course of 30 months. After writing 30 months of Facebook posts, did you print them all out and find a common thread? And
1: uh, Probably about a year's worth of posts. I was beginning to get emails and Facebook messages from people saying, you should turn this into a book. What you're encouraging people to do in terms of daily gratitude, you should put out there. And originally, I wasn't going to really use the Facebook posts. Originally, the book was going to be called 6.2 Miles because Sam used to walk um, to think he used to walk the 6.2 miles to his best friend's house in bare feet so he would connect with the earth as he did it. And I was going to use that as the basis but instead it became, as I went to look back at the posts, there were posts that I didn't remember writing because I was so deep in my grief that an awful lot, especially that first year was a blur. And as I went back through and looked at them, I remembered the events around them and and how the details, and it became the story of the things that happened that brought about those posts and what that journey had meant to me. And hopefully in the process gave other grieving parents or people grieving in general, an idea of a way to look at their process and still find something good in life.
0: When you're having a bad day now, Chris, how do you pull yourself up again and go forward and have find joy and have deliberate gratitude, as you like to say?
1: Well, it, um, you know, obviously, as we've talked about, Sam died in October. I hate the month of October. It, it you know, forever will be the month that took him from us. So, you know, going into October, the end of September, I start slipping into a funk about this. Is, October's coming. We're coming up on another anniversary. And so like this past October, Um, You know, every single day I pushed myself back to the idea of posting daily gratitude with a very open caveat at the beginning of I'm doing this because I'm struggling. And, you know, my husband two years ago was also diagnosed with ALS, with Lou Gehrig's disease. And with that, you know, that's a very different kind of grief. But in that process, needing to again be thankful every day. And so when I feel those moments of darkness, where, you know, it's not that I don't allow myself to grieve, I, I'm very open and very accepting with myself about my grief. But when I sense or feel that it is, or someone else says, I'm seeming to be struggling, I reach back to that toolbox of, Every day, I am going to at least speak out loud that for which I'm grateful, but usually write it and share it in some way.
0: Beyond the writing and the sharing on Facebook, what other actual tools do you use in your toolbox to get yourself out of a funk and find joy in the world? Like, give us some more specifics.
1: One is staying hydrated. Um, really? I am a
0: huge
1: believer in um, when I have not given my body enough water in a day, I will. I am much more prone to sort of feelings of being down. Um, I believe in walking and being outside in nature. I mean, part of why the book is entitled "Of Grief Garlic." Ingratitude gratitude is because I believe so much in the power of being out in nature and gardening and being part, you know, looking at the sky and looking at the trees and playing in the dirt. I also believe in meditation and, but not always meditation, sitting, listening to a guided meditation. Um, I find that knitting or spinning fiber can also be a very meditative act. Mahatma Gandhi talked about the idea of the spinning wheel being the ultimate in meditation. And so finding ways to look at how my body and mind are feeling, owning it, and then moving through it, not avoiding, moving through.
0: What What do you mean by that?
1: I mean, if I am in a if I am in a day in the midst of a day where the grief of losing Sam or the anticipatory grief of what's coming with ALS, my husband, if I'm having a bad day with that, I own it. I name it. I say, I am grieving today. I am mad today. I am frustrated and, This is why I am. And if I can't identify specifically why in the beginning, I take myself for a long walk to determine what it is that's sort of the pebble in my shoe that day. And then sit with it. I talk to myself a lot, talk myself through it, journal to reach the point of accepting what I'm feeling that day. And then again, reaching back for in the midst of that anger, frustration, whatever it is, what still happened in that day that made the day worth getting up? Now, you I, you earlier asked about other ways in, in which you know putting one foot in front of the other. I do have a very specific um, tool in that. Um, soon after, Sam, Sam planned on his 21st birthday to get a very specific tattoo. He obviously didn't live to do that. So his father and I both got that tattoo in his memory. But about a year later, I actually got a tattoo that is on my foot. And it signifies the idea of always making sure I put one foot in front of the other. And I often wear sandals, even in Vermont, even in the winter, because I like to see that reminder of no matter what, you have to keep going.
0: Wow. You're incredible. Someone who's had this much heartbreak also does not deserve to have the heartbreak of ALS. So I'm sorry about your husband, Paul's, your husband, Paul's diagnosis. Tell us about what you tell people. I know when the book came out, you did, you did media tours and you spoke before lots of large audiences. What kind of questions did you get? And what were you telling people beyond your, your toolbox here? Was there anything else you can share?
1: I I often, you know, I often speak to groups of people who are grieving, but I also often speak to people who have not, in particular, grieved the loss of a child. And I often talk about the, what I refer to as the do's and don'ts of working and being with someone who's grieving. There are things that can be so helpful. Um, You know, I, I mentioned that I'm really an awful crier. And yet when I was crying daily at work, I was a school principal and I still had to look somewhat professional. One of my teachers brought me really good waterproof mascara so I wouldn't go around looking like Alice Cooper. <laughs> it, was, it was such a simple gift, but it mattered so much. Everyone, as long as they are not self-harming or harming others, should be given the right to grieve in the way that works for them. And I talk, I speak often to groups about that idea of, especially in a Judeo Christian society, we tend to have ideas about how grief should look. And in particular, you know, thinking about Sam, there are relatives of ours that get very upset because people leave things on Sam's headstone in the cemetery. And sometimes the things make sense and we can figure out who they, you know, who gave them. But sometimes they're really random, but they matter to the person who left them and they signify a relationship. People should be able to grieve how it works for them as long as they're not self-harming or harming others. I also, though, strongly encourage anyone to think about how they, um, the words that come out of their mouths when they speak with someone who's grieving, and in particular with grieving parents or grieving siblings, it is very common for people to come up to grieving parents or siblings and say, well, at least you have three other children. Well, let me put it bluntly stop and think about your own children which one of them are you willing to just throw away and say it didn't matter or you know equating the loss of a child or a sibling to another loss all losses are important but you know there is brain research out there about the impact of the death of a child or of a sibling and not minimizing that by saying you and i've already spoken about the the day that someone said they totally understood what I was going through because they had just lost their dog. I love my dog, but it's not the same loss. And so that sort of, I speak often about the idea of the best thing you can do for someone who's grieving is just quietly be there and accept them, keep them hydrated, give them good Kleenex and just be with them.
0: I don't know what to say. You kind of have left me a little bit speechless here. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your your heart, helping people who are experiencing unspeakable loss.
1: Thank you. It's been wonderful.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on Finding Inspiration. Hey, I would appreciate it if you would click on that subscribe button and share this podcast with a friend. See you next week. I'm Jennifer Weissman.